Welcome to today's Hemp Barons podcast, everyone. I'm host Joy Beckerman, and very proud and happy to deliver to you part three of our three-part series with Michael Kravitz and Kenzie Ribulet on the 1961 Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs and the international roots of cannabis prohibition in all of its forms, industrial hemp, medical and adult-use cannabis, as well as cannabis and sustainable development, uh, paving the way for the next decade in cannabis and hemp policy. I want to talk this week as we move full speed ahead into the presidential election for 2020. Um, Also, the census collection of 2020 is wrapping up and the census is really important. I want to make sure we all understand what it is. The census is based in the U.S. Constitution, which explicitly states that the census is intended to count every person living in the United States both citizens and non-citizens alike. What's at stake? Why do we collect this information every 10 years? Um, So we haven't done this since 2010. Is $800 billion in federal funding. That's what's in stake. Uh, The census count determines how different resources are allocated for schools, for healthcare, for other essential programs. And the more people counted in our communities, the more funding for these community services we receive. So when we respond to the census, we're helping to make sure that our family, that our neighbors, that our communities um, get their fair share of the funding for these services, but also uh, that we get appropriate political representation. So results from the 2020 census actually are also used to determine the number of seats that each state has in Congress and our political representation really at all levels of government. It's so important to be counted. Again, citizens and non-citizens alike. And right now, because of COVID, the collection Uh, The data collection has been expanded and uh, the Census Bureau are looking for all of their offices to complete their work by September 30th. So there's still time. Now, it's really quick and easy to fill out the census if you haven't responded yet. So filling out the census is very quick and easy. It takes about 10 minutes. You just go to 2020census.gov. Once again, that's 2020census.gov. You may hear people the same way that they have naysayers out there and apathy around voting, you may hear the same thing around the census. Don't listen to apathy. Don't listen to conspiracy theories. Don't listen to disinformation campaigns telling you to be afraid to fill out the census or telling you that it's a waste of time. It asks basic questions about each person who lives in your household. It asks for their age, their name, their race, their their ethnicity, but it's not going to ask about immigration status. It's not going to ask if you're a U.S. citizen. And despite Despite this, many segments of various minority populations are still afraid to participate in the census. If they're refugees or immigrants or undocumented, they have a deportation order or they're a non-citizen, but we need to make sure that you're counted. Uh, Those census responses are totally confidential. They're protected by extremely strong laws, and the Census Bureau isn't allowed to share individual responses with anyone, including immigration enforcement or other government agencies. The Census Bureau cannot use your census Census response for any purpose other than statistical analysis and a violation of those laws can result in up to $250,000 in penalties and five years in prison. So please, if you have not filled out the census, don't be afraid. Go to 2020census.gov, fill it out, be counted, and make sure that your community and your family are getting their fair share of funding for services and political representation at all levels. 
Now, without further ado, let me bring to you part three and our three-part series from international cannabis heroes and sustainability heroes, Michael Kravitz and Kenzie Ribulet. Until next time, everyone, stay healthy, get out there, fill out your census, and register to vote. Well, this is wonderful. Welcome back again for the third part of our three-part series with Michael Kravitz and Kenzie Rabuli on the 1961 Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs. Thank you so much for being with me again today, Michael and Kenzie. Great to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah, great to be here. And today we will focus on uh, what is really near and dear to our hearts beyond the liberation of the plant, which I know is just life's work and life purpose um, for the three of us. But how can we heal the planet through this plant that is here to serve all of humanity's needs? And as many listeners have heard me say multiple times, we are talking about human and animal nutrition, nutraceuticals, pharmaceuticals, sacramental purposes, body care textiles, building materials, paper, industrial sealants and coatings, energy, fuel, batteries, nanotechnology, biomedical applications. Somebody stop me. The cannabis plant in all of its forms is here to heal uh, the needs and serve the needs of humanity and animals and the planet. And of course, as you well know, for being contributors and authors yourself, uh, the book Cannabis and Sustainable Development, Paving the Way for the Next Decade in Cannabis Hemp Policy has been birthed into the world thanks to FOD and many other international heroes across the world and heroines, including you folks. Michael, let's start with how is cannabis part of sustainable development? Well, gosh, uh, I, I think first uh, I'll just make a, a comment, maybe a, sort of a half joke that I was thinking, you know, oh, oh Joy's listing off the uses of hemp. I, I get a break. I can go take a walk, you know, <laughs> go, go go hang out in the park for a while and come back because, you know, you and I both know to, to, to actually do an exhaustive list of the uses for hemp. That would be its own show. That would be a whole hour. So uh, two shows, that would be two whole shows. So uh, I think that is a key thing that we as the cannabis movement have understood for a very long time that cannabis holds the keys to solve uh, some of the you know the world's biggest problems I and mean, jack Herrer, hemp can save the earth that was uh, kind of the mantra of our movement for good reason because growing cannabis hemp instead of cutting down the world's forests seems like a much better direction to go in uh, a, a renewable uh, a, a energy crop, a crop that can be used for developing jobs and meaningful lifestyles, but also the product of the plant. And that's why you, you have such great uh, benefit to people is because the plant is so useful and so and, and serves so many functions. So you know, really, we're talking about kind of our collective wisdom, something that our cannabis movement has known for a long time, that cannabis can help in environmental issues, that cannabis can help create good jobs, C cannabis can help uh, end some of the international issues of, of uh, smuggling and whatnot by, you know, through better law and regulation. Uh, so we've understood these things for a long time. And I think this is just our first effort to really put this into words and put it into a process. And we're happy that we have a process that we can plug into. 
it's it's amazing that we're talking about a plant uh, that is the source for growing the most fiber per acre of any uh, crop. And when we put it even against, say, cotton, a very popular crop uh, for textiles, cotton is short, inferior. It takes a lot of water. It takes a lot of pesticides. It's actually responsible for more than 50% of the pesticide use on the planet annually, only to produce a short, inferior material that is not going to last as long as a hemp textile garment uh, and that does not have many of the properties that the unique cellulosic makeup uh, of hemp fiber has. So, and that is just one of so many um, examples that we'll we'll probably discuss throughout this uh, this interview. How about you, Kenzie? What would you like to um, add as we move forward and explore all of these different ways that uh, hemp and cannabis and all of its forms protects and heals the the planet and the environment well there is um there is this other part of the another important part of the report cannabis and sustainable development uh it's actually related to cannabis although not directly cannabis it's prohibition and prohibition is uh actually uh, acting the exact opposite of sustainable development and uh, severely uh, provoking harm in all aspects of society so prohibition uh, forces uh, in developing countries forces uh, growers to go into more remote areas which are often protected areas of reserves of, of biodiversity um, but also forces people to work in terrible labor conditions and that's uh, prohibition and that's uh, directly a huge obstacle to trying to reach these uh, goals of sustainable development. Um, prohibition also made you know, people that grow cannabis in their home start to grow indoors instead of growing on their balcony or in the garden of their grandmother or whatever because of prohibition, because of repression and growing indoors is um, <clears throat> one of the worst way to grow a plant because it provokes more harms than the actual benefit that the plant will generate. So uh, prohibition has um, sort of balanced the cannabis plant in a way that it, it, if we sort of consider it today, cannabis in the context of prohibition, it might be that the benefit for sustainable development is almost neutral or almost maybe a bit negative because of prohibition, because of how prohibition have forced the human beings, the communities to interact with that plant, which is highly unsustainable. So. Uh, yeah, that's uh, maybe a sort of yin and yang view of the of the topic, but that's definitely. Uh, and I think the the sustainable development, the goals, the approach, the agenda made by the UN, and all these sort of 17 goals, which you know approach from different perspectives, different topics, and sort of try to detail all of the, all of the issues of. Our, our world, basically, our 21st century. That's a good way to to approach this yin yang cannabis and cannabis policies in particular and see what can be good what can be bad and and i did just want to to give the listeners sort of a, a real world american example of exactly what you just said so we're talking some of the most beautiful mountains right in ranges and and scenery in the world is in northern california the emerald triangle hum, humboldt county and we see gorilla um you know growing there not among the incredible sustainable hippies that have definitely been forced into all kinds 
kinds of um, unjust situations as they tried to uh, deliver this plant during prohibition to folks, but more of the gorilla growers there that are up there in the mountains with generators and oil, um, and they just dump the they dump their chemicals, they dump their oil, leave their waste right there in the middle of nature in the mountains, and and that again is uh, is just a good example of of prohibition and destroying the environment. And secondarily, although it's certainly a primary issue, um, is that as uh, there are legal and regulatory frameworks being developed on a state-by-state -state level here in the United States, many states are only allowing the indoor cultivation of adult and uh, medical cannabis. Washington State, where I live, does allow outdoor grows, and there's a whole movement for sun-grown cannabis, of course, but it is an environmental travesty, these gigantic facilities indoor um, to grow this beautiful plant that belongs outdoors in the sun. Absolutely. And please continue, um, Michael or Kenzie, as we c continue to explore this issue. And I, I'm sorry to have cut you off there, Kenz. <laughs> well, I, I, I'd like to give everyone a little bit of insight into what's changed. So something's changed in our world that gave us the you know kind of motivation to come out with this report. And I, I want to kind of explore that for a second. So Inside of the World Drug Program, you know, as we talked about in a, a separate show, uh, that these uh, drug treaties don't work like regular everyday treaties. They they're not self-executing. There's no you know enforcement, blue hat enforcement of the, of the treaties, um, and and uh, you know we're working in a world where it's all about metrics of success, really. I mean, that's what it really comes down to. And the metrics of success for the drug war have been political. It's been an ideological war for all our lifetimes, everyone alive, the whole 100-year war, uh, going all the way back to like 1899 with the first treaty. And I think that what's happening and, and what has happened recently at the UN is really important because what they've done is they've come up with these goals, as Kenzie described, 17 goals. And what they're designed to do is come up with real metrics of success. You know, you, your ideology may be good or be bad, but what is it doing that's good? Is it making people's lives safer? Are they in less poverty? Are they uh, less subject to human rights abuse? Are they better able to find uh, a good, clean food and good energy and and are they able to have housing these are all you know real world goals connected to real good outcomes for real people and it's it's somewhat of a dialogue inside the united nations system that created this this set of goals and a and a, and a timeline 2030 so this whole 10 years from 2020 to 2030 is the the 10-year sustainable development uh, window that the united nations has opened it's literally everywhere in the united nations system you can't go anywhere any building without seeing these big charts and graphs and posters it's on every email you know and it, it, it's really the reason why I say that is because I want people to, to know how accessible this program is. And it gives you a window by which to enter into a dialogue at the world level to change the world. And to, if you really are earnestly interested in using hemp as a tool to help save the world, you really bought into what Jack was saying. This is the way to do it. And, and I think when in our conversation with Steve D'Angelo a week or two ago about this really brought to my heart the opposite you know, direction as well. 
this is a great report that you can bring into your legislator. You can bring it to your, your family dinner. You can bring it to your family gatherings. You can bring it to your, 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 your legislative offices and your hearings and, and, and work from it and give yourself the, the, the authority of speaking with a much louder voice and use this as the roadmap that it is. And I'll let you know, Kenzie kind of uh, describe how this is a roadmap. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, as you say, it's interesting indeed. We, we it's 2015, 2016, and that also links with the discussion we had in the in the previous uh, in the previous parts. Um, in 2015, the UN adopts these goals, 17 goals for sustainable development, that are really um, quite uh, well known. Probably not that much inside of the US, but outside of the US, really sort of uh, popularly well known and used by a lot of civil society organizations, even companies to show civil um, you know, social responsibility, etc. And the UN came up with that in 2015, and in 2016, one year after, they adopt this UNGAS document, which is a, a major uh, plan for uh, drug policies on the world in the world for the next 10 or 20 years. Um, and this is w one year after the adoption of the Sustainable Development Agenda, and they come up with a plan which, unless everything we had in the past, which was just demand reduction, supply reduction and cooperation. So it's like repression of use, repression of traffic and the cooperation to make more repression. And after the SDG, they realized, well, now the UN has an approach that is uh, comprehensive and that is progressive on almost all aspects of our society, including environmental issues, social justice, uh, you know, gender equality, etc., etc. So we can't just continue adopting a plan on drugs that is totally separated from that and not related. And so they adopted this UNGAS, which is kind of cool and which also puts the drug policies are uh, absolutely embedded into the sustainable development. They are mutually reinforcing and they are critical. It's critical to take into consideration sustainable development for international drug policies. So we say that's a great thing to, to say. Let us show you how to do it concretely and that's uh, why why we did this this report also in a way so it's it's also um, a dialogue between the world cannabis communities because really people from all continents have taken part into this report dialogue between all of, all of these people all of us and the united nations which is just not a bunch of bureaucrats but it, which is all the governments of the countries of the world that meet there. Uh, the report was distributed in hard copies, uh, almost 5,000 copies at the United Nations to all countries, all delegation, all the experts in public health, in security, law enforcement, etc., etc., coming to the you know annual meeting on on drug policy. So it's really a landmark moment of discussion between the cannabis communities and the community of prohibition in a way because prohibition comes from there
when I, I, you know, have done so much lobbying and advocacy over the years and continue, it's the most important thing we do. It's what we do, guys, right? You, you guys are just the heroes and heroines of the world doing it at the international level. And I have created binders with tabs, you know, my profession, um, in addition to hemp law and policy compliance and expert testimony has been in complex uh, litigation and compliance. And so creating binders that are highly organized with tabs for busy lawyers and busy judges um, is something that I'm very good at it. And I have been preparing those for various legislators and I know how much they appreciate it and how much work goes into that. You sat there and with these amazing, this incredible team, Print, made an entire book here. Here it all is in one book. Let us distribute them, which was not only just a tremendous amount of countless, countless hundreds, if not thousands of hours um, of time and expertise that went into drafting it. But of course, uh, the fundraising that went into publishing it, distributing it, uh, getting your traveling arrangements so that you could actually get it into the hands of the most important people who need to have this information. And that is the decision makers at the UN and World Health Organization level. This is tremendous. Um, we, and we treasure, I treasure my copy. We, we should tell a, a funny story from that. I mean, at least one, I, many come to mind, but uh, one of them is, uh, we, we, this book is actually printed fairly inexpensively. We printed it in the Czech Republic and it turned out to be pretty heavy. It's, a, it's ironic. It's like food, maybe, you know, you, cheaper food is more fattening or I don't know why it's a strange universe right so uh, we have this cheaper book and it's heavier and we had a th several thousand copies we brought to the United Nations and as grassroots as we are we brought them basically right through the front door moved them down the hallway and put them in the NGO lounge and started distributing them and uh, really wasn't we weren't thinking about the, the chunk of space that we were taking up in the NGO lounge uh, due to many circumstances that year uh, kind of out of off the hook year, uh, th there was a need for uh, clarifying the rules of engagement at the United Nations. And the NGO committee actually created a rule saying that you couldn't put big stacks of books in the corner of the NGO lounge <laughs> because of our <laughs> sustainable development book. Oh but, my goodness. Yeah. And for, so the listeners know NGO, of course, is non-governmental organizations. And there is an NGO lounge within the United Nations conference. Uh, Conferencing centers there, and and it sounds like you you folks took up a book. We kind of took it over, yeah. We kind of took it over. <laughs> Oftentimes, around us, cannabis activists rules are made. What can we say? We will <laughs> push it and get our message out until someone says, "Okay, you have to get it out a different way." We adapt like permaculture, advocacy permaculture, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's it exactly. <laughs> so please um, continue. I want to make sure that we're, while we have you and, and of course, all the way from the mountains of Virginia and, and the beautiful lands of Barcelona, we've got you today and for a third time. So I want to make sure we're getting out to our listeners everything that you think is important for them to know. Wow. If we really need to do that, then it's not free episode we have to do, but probably <laughs> a couple more. <laughs> But some of, some of, uh, of the key points and then certainly would love to talk about, again, these environmental benefits. But I want to make sure that from a law and policy level, your expertise, yeah. uh, what is important to disseminate? 
Yeah, well, I think what's really important to, to, to remember is that if you, if you dig behind all of that, both prohibition, both cannabis policies per se, or the sustainable development agenda, what you find behind this is uh, human rights. And it's maybe basic to say it, but it needs to be said. It's in the end all a question of human rights, be it the right of patients, the right also of physicians and doctors, um, the rights of farmers and small farmers, the rights of peasants. These are all human rights recognized internationally and in a series of countries. Um, so, and, and they sort of already codify all all of the best thing to which we aspire, to which we all of the hopes of the. Mm, cannabis communities or the people involved or interested in, in cannabis policy and hemp policy uh, reform and, and, and the uh, normalization of hemp and cannabis in our societies. It's uh, really a human rights issue and it's probably a human rights is probably the best tool to really understand the, the core um, topics, the core issues that we have to deal with. About just moving on to a very related subject, how about carbon, carbon sequestration, carbon footprint, the carbon conversation in general? Um, are either of you wanting to discuss that in, in terms of the book, in terms of national and international policy? Yeah, that's something we, we recommend uh, in the book because indeed it's a good, um, I mean, it's been shown to be good to to push towards more sustainable uh, practices for businesses and in particular in what concerns uh, cultivation. We talked before about indoor cultivation. I think it's definitely something we, we have to, this kind of, of, of regulation that we need to consider to, um, since the cannabis industry is created from zero, they might have a tendency to reproduce what industries are doing, which is not necessarily exemplary. So, um, if, since we have the opportunity to craft cannabis policies that are specific to cannabis, let's get inspired in policies that work for the protection of the environment and for, uh, you know, sustainable development generally. When we talk about deforestation, of course, I'm, and we see all of these memes and t-shirts, anything wood can do, hemp can do, or anything wood can do, hemp can do better. Um, and with very, very few exception, you know, that's absolutely true. Even uh, going back to uh, the 1960 research by a researcher, Leister Dewey from the USDA, who planted his uh, hemp fields right around Virginia, Washington, D.C. area. In fact, our understanding is that a portion of the Pentagon was plopped and built right on top of some of Leister Dewey's hemp fields. But it was in that research way back in 1916 for the use of hemp herds, of course, the inner woody core of the hemp stock to be used in paper that over a 20-year period, an acre of hemp will produce 20 times more, I'm sorry, going to do that one over Dan, a little editing note, that over a 20-year period, an acre of hemp will produce four times more paper than trees. And that is, of course, because it takes about 20 years to grow a tree that could then be harvested and its its pulp used uh, for paper. And over that same 20-year period, that acre of hemp will be grown and harvested several times. But I think on top of that, what's very important to know, of course, is that linen uh, is what gives plants its rigidity, right? If you're going to punch a tree, you're going 
going to hurt your hand. It's filled with linion. That's a very hard plant uh, versus the amount of linion in the hemp plant. Um, and so we don't need to use it hardly. We hardly need to use as many chemicals at all to break down that cellulose to make a hemp pulp for paper versus the chemicals that it takes to break down the wood cellulose for paper. Secondarily, when you break down the wood pulp, you've now got this dark because of all of the linen uh, pulp that then needs to be bleached. And then that requires dioxin, which we have been poisoning the water tables with for decades and decades. We do not need to bleach. Uh, hemp pulp. We can all just get used to a nice creamy colored paper. We don't need bleached uh, white paper. So, and that is just one product, but it's one product that we use universally. And I know there's, of course, huge reductions in paper use with the with the advent of electronic mail and electronic document signing, et cetera, et cetera. But we still use a ton of paper. And that is just one of, of many um, products, of course, that uh, if we switch over to recycled materials and blending hemp with it for hemp, uh, for paper, will have just a significant impact, that alone, on the environment. What, just one example. Also, I mean, absolutely, and it's also an impact for farmers because when you grow trees, you can't necessarily produce with the same crop medicine and use all the wastes from the trees to do other kinds of product, which is the case with hemp. So the multi-purpose aspect of the, of the crop is also absolutely critical for both uh, the environment and the reduction of the overall impact of our production on the environment because with the same impact the same crop you can obtain different products instead of with different crops also the impact the social impact on on farmers which is which is incredible the fact that you have different sources of revenue which fluctuate differently which ensure you more uh, stability um, it's definitely something that we should uh, we should uh, and leave the trees where they are and meanwhile yeah. while the growing it is of course capturing and sequestering carbon michael it sounded like you were excited to say something well i i just wanted to kind of give a little context i i don't want to give people too much homework so i'm not going to ask everyone to read the it's over a hundred page book but i will ask everyone to at least read the goals the 17 goals that the u.n has put forward and just for an example 12 13 and 15 are responsible consumption and production combat climate change and its impacts and ecosystems of life and land. And the reason why I read those three, you know, under this heading of carbon is because I want to point out how, you know, these singular issues for us actually cross over with many of the different goals within the sustainable development goals. And the work that we've been doing out there in the field is so applicable and is so helpful to this process. But I also want to point out that you know, I, I really have a special connection to Lister Dewey. I, I, if you remember, I'm the guy that uh, brokered the deal that brought in his uh, his diaries and, and brought them into our movement to be. Oh, that's right. yeah. oh so I, I was I was actually the guy that was responsible for the uh, Washington Post article that broke the story about the wash about the uh, uh, Pentagon being on a hemp field. So uh, and I, and I love that connection. It's a beautiful thing. So anyway, uh, at that same time, around 1900. 1920 was our first drug laws in the United States. And it was about the time, I imagine, when we really started getting most involved in the UN treaty system. And the reason why I point that out is because these sustainable development goals kind of go, there's sort of two different, it's a bridge and then a new world. So the bridge is getting out of prohibition. 
This prohibition was set up as part of colonialism. And those colonial lines break down right on weed, right in a weed field. And, and, and essentially, uh, some of our best cannabis on earth, subjectively, for medicine, for recreation, for spiritual use, etc., is on some small crops of land, like you said already, in Humboldt, but also in, in beautiful places all over the earth that all seem to be little niche places. They're not in the middle of, of, of the downtown area. They're out there in the country uh, in, in places all over the earth owned by little people, by small farmers, by indigenous people, by traditional medicine healers. And uh, these colonial lines have created the playground that now these big industries are taking advantage of and growing huge amounts of weed indoors and stuff like that. They'd never be able to compete with cannabis grown in a developing country. And we need to retool everything. Our, 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 our uh, crop replacement, you know, in the drug war, we need to be using cannabis as the crop that replaces. Instead of replacing cannabis, we should be using cannabis to replace other crops. Uh, instead of growing poppy, grow cannabis, etc. And and I think that uh, we need to be looking at cannabis uh, as a healing crop for the nations hurt by by colonialism and and recognize that colonialism is not over that these effects still go on today and little countries countries without a whole lot of political clout that, that lack that geopolitical power are don't feel free to grow cannabis the same way canada might or the united states might or even uh, countries in the americas like uruguay might so uh, you know we're working with countries like thailand that have a real burgeoning cannabis crop that they want to put out there uh, we want to be able to have an, an equal playing field worldwide and i think in, you know using these cannabis and sustainable development as a guide we can retool the entire system the treaty needs to be rewritten but the whole system needs to be rewritten in a way that protects the the little guy our friend in the cannabis world we are talking reform at, at, at such high levels and, and how it even trickles down, even beyond colonialism, which is it's sort of what, what would I say a compounding factor as states liberate the plant. For example, Georgia. The, so the governor of Georgia uh, just passed an amended or new law in Georgia, which increases the processing for hemp fee in that state. It was $10,000 for a processing license last year, which was already just astronomical and obviously cost prohibitive for smaller players. But this new law increased it to $50,000. So now a hemp processing license in Georgia is $50,000. Why? Because there was no fiscal note, no appropriations afforded to the hemp plan. And that's happening. A lot of these hemp uh, production and hemp processing laws are being passed in states, but they're only being passed. There's general support, bipartisan support. Generally, everyone, you don't have to prove to many states other than, let's say, Idaho, Iowa, South Dakota, Mississippi, um, of the value and, and safety of this crop. Most of them are totally on board, but they don't know how to pay for the program in their state. And so in order to get the law passed, they say, oh, the fiscal note is zero and they don't apply a budget to actually be able to administer or carry out the plan. And so George's idea was, well, we don't have any money, so I guess we'll charge $50,000 for each hemp processing license. I mean, clearly there is, you know, a combination of interests happening when these types of ridiculous laws and fees um, are put forth. And I also, just, just following up on our sort of exponential impact 
act of just replacing hemp with uh, replacing paper with hemp and other recycled fibers and other fibers. Hemp is a great blender. We don't need 100% hemp everything. Hemp is a wonderful uh, blender in these different pulps. But how that even continues, of course, you're letting the trees stand, but it's recyclable about 100 more times than tree paper. It can be made acid-free, which means it lasts longer. And then, of course, the biodegradability in general of, of products that are responsibly manufactured using hemp. You can certainly, we could still make products that are not biodegradable, although they have some hemp in them. And we're glad that there's going to be hemp in them as opposed to more caustic chemicals. So not everything is biodegradable just because it has hemp in it, but certainly it increases the uh, ability for these products of every kind um, to be biodegradable. And of, of course, and touching on some of the other planetary aspects, because it's it's an important thing for us to address uh, in this particular episode, is, you know, phytoremediation. Of course, uh, the plant uptakes heavy metals and other contaminants. Lots of research going on around that. There's even some research studies going on where they are uptaking nickel into the plant and then extracting the nickel out of the grown plant. Uh, we're discovering, of course, we're another source for bees, for pollinators. So just when other sources of pollen have already died, all of a sudden hemp's pollen becomes available, a new source at a critical time for pollinators. Um, we can certainly go into breaking the pest cycle for, for regenerative, sustainable farming techniques when those are employed. And I think that's very important for folks to understand that certainly regular old commercial, conventional hemp farming techniques can be used on hemp, but you're going to kill your soil, salinate it, um, and not have as robust a crop as, as if you were employing responsible agronomic uh, and regenerative techniques, which would help break the pest cycle in your rotation crop, which would help reduce the need for pesticides as well as herbicides. Um, and then hemp is a hungry crop, depending on how healthy your soil is. I know we used to yell from the rooftops, it doesn't take any inputs back in the 90s. It doesn't take any water. It's a miracle plant. It grows anywhere. But of course, if you are, growing for agricultural commercial purposes, you're going to feed your crop. And depending where you are, that that plant may need 18 inches of water. And you're doing research up in Canada, they're up to 200 pounds of acre, uh, pounds of nitrogen per hectare and still haven't met maximum yield. But then there's wonderful quality in Holland, uh, quality soil in Holland, where they're not having to add those inputs, inputs and are getting some tremendous um, yield. So lots of research still needing to go on, but we're talking about a plant that just has tremendous benefits here. And, and before we close, I want to give each of you gentlemen an opportunity to, to say something that you want to make sure is said if it hasn't been done already. No, I think uh, you made a perfect overview and you made an overview almost of all the, the goals in your speech just now. And I, I, maybe I want to, to, to close by saying that all of this indeed is possible only if hemp and cannabis generally uh, are applied laws that are reasonable and that are coherent and that's goal 16 of the sustainable development agenda uh, that says policy coherence and harmonization of, of, of policy and um, red tape and overburdensome regulations on hemp just like the example you gave are definitely not going to make all of this potential uh, unfold and that's uh, really not sustainable so 
goal 16 and coherence, harmonization and normalization are critical and are maybe the first step to allow all the other goals to be, to be met by, by this wonderful plant. Common sense. We're just asking for common sense, data, scientifically driven law and policy. And all of that points to liberate this plant, make it easy for farmers to grow, make it easy for people to process, make the quality assured products from and get them out to the consumer and get hemp in every room in your house. I mean, that that's really the bottom line. And how about you, Michael? Anything you want to leave the listeners with, sir? So I, I, I was thinking, I don't know why this jumped in my mind, but I'm going to close with an introduction to the audience to a little bird. And the little bird's name is Cannabina Lynette. And Cannabina Lynette translates roughly to the little cannabis finch. And the reason that I say I found an Audubon print over 100 years old, hand-colored print from a big Audubon book. They used to publish these books of prints of all these beautiful birds. And there's the Cannabina Lynette standing on a cannabis plant, on the, on the leaf, on the, on the arm of the plant with the leaves there. And it's just the most beautiful thing. And I don't think you have to explain to anyone why our world is an integral part of the solution towards sustainable development when they realize that we've got a little finch named after our plant. So I think I'll leave you with that. And and for those that want to find the report, it's really easy to find. Get out on the web. Just type in Cannabis and Sustainable Development, uh, Kenzie Ribulet, and uh, you'll pull right up the, the copy there on a I think research gate is one of the easiest places to find it. But uh, if you have any trouble, certainly find us. We're easy to find. Go to the Cannabis Movement and ask for Mike or Kenzie. Uh, truly. You brothers and and so many sisters I know who who work with you are such my heroes. We are forever in your debt as we trudge through our state, local, and national halls of Congress and legislature. We know that you are working your butts off at the international level to really break free for all of us uh, the the root of the laws that we are suffering from and that cannabis suffers from throughout the planet. And we're making such tremendous progress. Words really don't express the depth of gratitude. Thank you, my brothers. I stand in solidarity with you and I'm so grateful for the work that you do. Thank you for being with us on Hemp Parents for this three-part series. Thanks for having us. It was great. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey everyone, it's Ryan from the Cannabis Connoisseur Podcast. If you're looking for ways to utilize cannabis to keep you healthy, strong, and sharp, come join us every Wednesday where we dive into the best ways to use cannabis to optimize your life. Topics include cannabis and athletics, cannabis for productivity, cannabis for anxiety, cannabis for a healthy immune system, and so much more. If you're a curious connoisseur, this show is for you. So please head over to our page and we're looking forward to seeing you this week. Bye.